Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Dan Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by Steph and Barry. How are you guys? Hey, Danny. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, it feels like we've just been recording in the last half hour. I don't know. That's that's the feeling <laughs> I get. A, a reference to things that fans uh, can't take part in, <laughs> which, which <laughs> happened before, too. Anyways, we're going to move on from that. So we are really pleased to have John Doring here with us to present a case. And John, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Hi, yeah. Uh, my name's John. Thanks for having me. I'm one of the uh, general internal medicine fellows here in the UBC program. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of podcasts and have always wanted to be on one. So this is my first podcast. And I think it's safe to say I'm a fan of the show, if I'm allowed to say that. You yeah. are. You're in- Thanks, encouraged, John. in fact. <laughs> Um, and I have to say that it's uh, we are in the business of making people's dreams come true. So uh, <laughs> we're happy to have brought you onto the show and uh, check that one off your bucket list. <laughs> so, John, we're we're actually going to hand over to you and um, we'll let you get started on the case and uh, interrupt you constantly for the next hour or so. Absolutely. That sounds great. So this case, this is an 81-year-old gentleman who presents with hypokalemia. So he has a past medical history of coronary artery disease. He had an MI back in 2011 with a stent inserted. He also has hypertension, chronic kidney disease with a baseline GFR of 40 to 45. There's a history of renal stones dating back a couple of years as well. History of GERD, depression, a previous TERP, as well as a previous cholecystectomy uh, back in 2018. In terms of medications that he takes at home, he's on amlodipine, metoprolol, a baby aspirin, escitalopram, as well as pantoprazole that he takes as needed for reflux. So going through his history of how he presented, so he had been experiencing some weakness in general lethargy for the past few months. His wife actually initially thought that he might be depressed given his energy levels. And they went to his family doctor and had some outpatient labs done because they were worried that it might be his kidney function given that he had known chronic kidney disease. So his lab showed that he had a sodium of 141, a potassium of 2.4, a creatinine of 169 with a GFR of 32, and he was told to go to the hospital given his electrolyte abnormalities. So just a bit more on history. He states that otherwise he's been well. Uh, He's had no fevers. Uh, There's some slight weight loss, but no significant weight loss, uh, mostly due to the slight decrease in his appetite. No nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. There's no cough or respiratory symptoms, no cardiac symptoms, and no focal weakness, just general weakness. In terms of sort of his intake history, uh, back in the fall of 2020, due to the passage of kidney stones, he had been told to increase his fluid intake by his doctor, as well as to stop eating oxalate-rich foods. So he'd been drinking multiple tall glasses of water a day in order to increase his fluid intake. And then he'd also been restricting his diet uh, to avoid oxalate-containing foods. And with a general decrease in appetite, like I mentioned before. You know, he, you know, John, it's always interesting to me when you say that. And I was just thinking about this. If someone asked me to refrain from eating oxalate-rich foods, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd know what to refrain from. I, I, I have to admit, I, well, I'd look it up, but I mean, I just... So it's an interesting comment. I would personally just cut out eating big blocks of oxalate from my diet. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you could look it up. And then he's uh, substituting glycerosinic acid, I would think, for the oxalate. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know a ton about this. I would look it up too if I was in this situation. But I think it does. It includes like nuts and some fruit, like citrus is high in oxalate. You know, I, 
this is I'm sure this is not going to turn out to be the case, but a lot of the foods that are that are high in oxalate are also sources of potassium and magnesium. And so like, yeah, I think that's an interesting, d- depending on the timing of all this and, and history of what other blood work we have, I do find that it's I'm parking it as a as an interesting fact. Take that. I know a little bit about oxalate. I'm yeah, you do. really impressed, actually. That was pretty great. <laughs> I totally understand. It. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I want this on, uh, on, on record. I want this as podcast canon that my favorite citrus is the Tangella, king of the citrus. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So I know a little bit of, uh, about that. citrus as well. So I guess we're all, <laughs> yeah. uh, we all know that's stuff a hybrid about of a, That's a hybrid of a tangerine and a pomelo? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. Mm, good for you. Oh man, guys, right. it's great. Keep, if you haven't had keep one, going. you should definitely get one. <laughs> Tangelo, oh, right. Sorry, okay. we're in a podcast. So, that, yeah, John. Is that your <laughs> favorite food and, and you're not sure what it's actually made of? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not ready to tell everyone what my absolute favorite <laughs> fruit is. I was just giving you a, a little taste, a little taster, just the citrus. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to this case. So we have a, a hypokalemic gentleman in the emergency department now. Yeah, so um, when you go to see him uh, and examine him, his heart rate's in the 60s. His blood pressure is 144 over 64. His oxygen saturation is 97% on Remer, and he has uh, no fevers reported. He looks well. He's alert and oriented. He's able to give you a full history. His exam is fairly unremarkable and non-contributory. His cardiovascular exam reveals a normal S1 and S2 with no extra heart sounds and no murmurs. His respiratory exam reveals clear breath sounds to the bases of his lungs. His abdominal exam reveals a soft and non-tender abdomen. There's no masses, no hepatosplenomegaly, and no suprapubic masses or tenderness. And he's warm and well-perfused peripherally. But John, I'm interested in his muscle strength and his neurologic exam. Yeah, so he has five out of five strength in, in all his limbs. He has no obvious neurologic deficits on a basic neurologic exam. He feels weak, but he's able to, you know, do strong exercises and move his limbs and walk and everything like that. Okay. Thanks. Um, can I can I ask uh, the the real general internist in the room here? Do you guys still approach like hypokalemia like we learned in in med school? Like to think about like decreased intake, increased output, shift, or have you kind of come up with your own hybrid approach to to this problem now uh, that you've seen this so many times? I think it's a good question. You know, I, and I think it's kind of like I would say this is like every other thing that that is common enough to have a well-established approach to. Like when I was, particularly when I moved to British Columbia, people here are really big on approaches to things, which I think is just a superior way to learn and practice medicine. And I had that approach, I would say, sort of decreased intake, increased losses and shifts. And then like every other thing, like shortness of breath and like hypertension and like every other thing that I see, I've layered on pattern recognition so that I'm trying to sort of at most times oscillate between effortful sort of type A uh, cognitive processes and and pattern recognition sort of expert level type B processes and I think and I, and I and I do try to balance those you know I, I see patterns and I say to myself hmm I wonder if it could be that pattern emerging and let's not try to miss anything here let's also think through like a sensible differential diagnosis. That we bury do bury <laughs> I don't have anything to add. I mean, I, I have to admit that probably um, my initial, and this is just the bias, is that I probably look at pattern recognition and then test the hypothesis of that pattern recognition based on the context. Uh, so I, I don't think I'm as 
formal as you, Steph. I may come to it, but probably not in the same regimented way that you that you're arriving. Yours is probably a better system than mine. Barry, you no, choose it's, to it's, do the uh, the jazz solo version of uh, medicine, where yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you freestyle your way through. Uh, freestyle. I'm, I'm freestyling. Yeah, I'm, I'm letting it. I'm letting it run. Okay, that's great. Okay, great. So, John, what what happened? Kind of first thing in the emerge. Can I so, ask you, John? I mean, is there more to the? I have to admit that someone who appeared in my office with weakness and a potassium of 2.4, I don't think I'd send to the emergency room. Is there something else that we've not heard or we're missing that precipitated his emergency room assessment? He had a kidney injury as well, right? But that's chronic. Yeah, so it was the potassium being low. His creatinine is up a little bit from where it was before um, in terms of his baseline GFR, not dramatically, but a a bit. But it was mostly the electrolytes. Okay. It's pretty low. I mean, I'd probably want the patient to have an ECG. So in the emergency department, when he shows up, he gets his lab work repeated just to confirm that the outpatient labs are correct. And so he gets a basic CBC. Uh, his white blood cells are 8.7 with a normal differential. His hemoglobin is normal at 135 and his platelet to normal as well at 273. His sodium is 141. His potassium is 2.2. His chloride is 117. His bicarb is 17. Urea is 8.4 and creatinine is 164. Say, say the bicarb again? 17. Oof. Yeah. Is anyone, is anyone else surprised by that? Uh, no, I'm not surprised, but I, I guess that's one of the reasons I wondered about what his electrolytes were. Because now I think we've, we're in a ballpark that's, that's renal tubular in, in origin, and I think that's helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I had some other hypotheses, and those things are dropping rapidly down my list. So. <laughs> yeah. and, and Steph, can you elaborate on that? Like what, what were some things that you were wondering about? Well, I was wondering about like when he started the pentoprazole. I've seen this a few times, like people sometimes as a complication of PPI use, they, they develop concurrent hypomagnesemia and hypokalemia. And so I was wondering if that might be a contributor, maybe even unmasked by this recent dietary change. I was, I, I thought that may have something to do with it, but obviously that does not that has nothing to do with this this surprise finding of a bicarb of seventeen. So I think I'm I I'm getting a little bit moist for RTA as a as a thing to explore. I'm interested in that idea. And I I think you did say this at the end there, John. But what was his glucose? Uh, his glucose was normal at six point seven. Mm-hmm. All right. And John, do we have any information? Uh, you mentioned CKD, but do we have any information on electrolytes in the last? year or so other than the creatinine uh there are some old outpatient uh labs that were done previously his last labs that are done they're about two to three months prior his sodium's 143 his potassium is 3.4 his creatinine's 154 but no bicarb and no chloride mentioned the most recent one is from four months ago his chloride's 116 and his bicarb is 17 okay and and John, sorry, this, this is just to round things out. Magnesium phosphate and CK. I, I think you may have mentioned a couple of those. Uh, I'm not sure I I did. When he sh- showed up, he didn't have a CK done right away, but he had some extended electrolytes done shortly after presentation. His calcium is normal at 2.15. His magnesium is slightly high at 1.0, and his phosphate's a little bit low at 0.59. That's helpful. Uh, yeah, that's a that's interesting. I think like I'm not sure who like framed it this way, but but every time like I was doing a consult and emerge as a resident, like doing 
the usual like like okay whatever the problem list is doing the approach for each of those things but also thinking of like not just causes but consequences it was like kind of the the higher level thinking i think maybe when i was trying to transition to senior was to think like okay hypokalemia is the problem but what are other problems that hypokalemia begets and so i think i'd i'd want to know uh, as a senior resident like i'd want to get that ck up front to make sure that this person isn't like in rhabdo or something um, as a result, doesn't sound like it. But anyone coming in with weakness, you'd probably want to know that anyways. Mm-hmm. Great. Very cool, John. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, the weakness of hypokalemia is usually associated with muscle weakness and generalized weakness. And yet you've described somebody who's strong and I'm assuming has no muscle tenderness or swelling. So it's uh, just, uh, to me, it's it's not quite that his hypokalemia doesn't seem to correspond to his weakness. Now, maybe weakness in this case means lethargy, which in case, I guess it would correspond. Mm-hmm. All right. So, John, what, what happened next? So, he uh, gets, I guess, a couple more labs just to confirm what's going on. Uh, he gets his potassium replaced. Um, and after his potassium is replaced, he has his electrolytes repeated, including a VBG. So, his pH is 7.28. Uh, his bicarb on the VBG is 13, and his sodium is 143, his potassium is 2.3, and the chloride is 121. So it takes a little while to replace his potassium to normal, but once he becomes normal kalemic with some intravenous and oral potassium, his sodium is 147 with a potassium of 4.0, but his chloride is still elevated at 124, and his bicarb is still low at 13. I, I mean, you're demonstrating uh, by his laboratory assessment with his hyperchloremia and, and acidosis that he has renal tubular dysfunction. You also mentioned that, at least I think you mentioned, that his phosphate was low. I mean, and usually in chronic kidney disease, his phosphate would be normal or high. So it suggests as well that he might be losing phosphate. Uh, so he has phosphaturia and pos- possibly losing potassium in his urine as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that the potassium is like replaceable. So he, he's able to, I guess, absorb it. That doesn't mean the, the kidneys are holding on to it well, but it's at least good news that we can replace it. Now, would, would you guys, because this is like, this really is like pretty deep in the darker recesses of my like internal medicine mind, but would you guys want to do urine studies before replacing the potassium or is that of no consequence? Like you're going to find the abnormality regardless of the replacement. I think it depends on what his ECG looks like. Like if if we're not seeing prolonged QT or or any kind of like dan- like increased ventricular ectopy or dangerous arrhythmias, I think there's time to wait. But at that level, almost certainly, so <laughs> by the time I get to see the patient, someone's given them potassium, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I don't think it'll mess up. I don't think it'll mess up the workup okay. that much, actually. Okay. Yeah, and I, I agree entirely. I think that I don't think it's going to influence our, his urinary electrolytes and how we assess it. And he's still got. Uh, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. I mean, acidemia as well. I mean, this is, he's by his blood gases. So yeah, I, I don't, and we've heard he's had renal calculi. So that's another contributing factor to our thoughts about what the problem is. Okay. Well, I, you know what? My mind doesn't move quite fast enough to follow that. So I'm curious to see what, what happens next. So maybe, uh, John, where do we go from there? I, I am a bit curious as to what you guys would would order next because a lot of this becomes what lab tests you want to order and how you interpret them. Yeah, I'm happy to Damn, go through I it. I thought you were just going to tell us the answer. <laughs> I, I absolutely can. Right. I, I can feed. I can feed you <laughs> nah, all the nah. information. Nah, nah, nah. We'll do the work. Okay. 
<laughs> here we go. So, guys, what are we gonna what are we gonna order to get ourselves out of this uh, renal tubular nightmare? <laughs> I. <laughs> so again, I think probably we need to start. I would. I think in this specific case, you need to do. You know, I think if, it's, if we're talking about a general workup for hypokalemia um, without some more obvious explanation some people will do like a transtubular potassium gradient but here we have this just just to prove that there's like inappropriate potassium excretion in the urine but here we're concerned about this low bicarb as well and so i would probably i would probably just flip my mind out of thinking about hypokalemia writ large and start thinking about the possibility of a renal tubular acidosis, I, I think I would just sort of make that leap. And then we're talking about a little bit different studies. We're talking about getting like urine pH, a urine anion gap, and starting from there, you know? Totally agree. I, I think that would be really helpful. Uh, and, and and because it's just, just uh, you know, usually I wouldn't order the phosphate. I think it'd be interesting to see if he's got phosphate in his urine. But um, yeah, I, I think that's that's the way to go. And and I guess in anticipation, I mean, if if he has hypokalemia and we're thinking of renal tubular acidosis, I would think that type four is not the type we're thinking about. And why do you say that? Well, because that's often associated with hyperkalemia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I mean, I think we're probably in my mind. This is going to be like I don't know. I'm given his age. I'm, I guess I'm wondering about like a type two process with uh, like a myeloma in the background that's previously yeah. been undiagnosed, but. I don't know for sure. I, I don't want to skip ahead. No, Is but I, I agree with you. I think that that's, I mean, presumably this would have been uncovered before. And so, you know, we're talking not congenital, but we're talking presumably acquired. And and I guess, the, do you feel like the low phosphate, is that a clue for you that this is like a proximal RTA? No, not not for me. It's just interesting that, uh, you know, the the... The congenital RTAs might have this, and you know they have amino acid urea, and uh, uh, so. But I, I really think, given his, I think that that's so far yeah. removed, probably he's from him. That yeah, yeah he's eighty one. Exactly, <laughs> it's not that, a congenital that, uh, disease showing yeah, up at eighty one. Yeah, so <laughs> I think that I think we're talking about something that I, I think we're talking about a process that underlines. Let, let me just say, I think his his electrolytes are a, a signal for his underlying process, which is causing him weakness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to figure out, so we're going to define which RTA he has, like which category, and then work back from that category through the etiologies because his clinical presentation, he didn't describe any other really overt, clear syndrome or symptoms that make us say like, oh, like he's got terrible ocular sicca, so he obviously has like Sjogren's and RTA from that or blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. That's going to be our approach. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get there. He goes studies. again, Barry, making us a room podcast. I know. I know. He, can ne- he can't Jeez. stop, right? I he mean, just we can't leave us the, alone. The RTAs to the kidneys. So this must be a joint problem. That's we're all trying I to know. talk about trying to talk about kidneys here, and he's talking about Sjogren's. My God. Fair criticism. What, a, what, what a am diva. I even talking about? What a John, diva. We'll, <laughs> John, let's hand it back to you where they uh, bully me some more. Great. So I can give you the urine studies that you asked for. So the pH of his urine is 7.0. His urine sodium is 108, which is above the higher limit of normal. His urine potassium is 13 and his urine chloride is 114. Sorry. He has a negative urine anion gap? Uh, no. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering if you guys no. brought your calculators there. 
So 130, 117, and potassium of 13? So sodium is 108, potassium is 113, chloride is 114. I don't know. Honestly, I, I, I need a calculator to do that. Yeah, my calculator is can you way just, <laughs> over there. <laughs> can you just give us the urine anion gap? His urine anion gap is yeah. seven. Okay. All right. Um, Guys, can you remind me? Is that, uh, what is, is that good or is that bad? <laughs> is it good? Is it, well, so I would say like, I have been in this situation a few times before and, and because the thing can be a little bit dynamic, like and can be thrown off by the patient's potassium level and their possible supplementation, this can be a little bit tricky. But, but let's, let, let's go back to the first bit. This, this is a man who's got acidemia and you would expect that he would be able to acidify his urine to get rid of to neutralize this. And, 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 and in fact, he, he, his urine pH is, I'm sorry, 7.0. So he can't acidify his urine. Yeah. So, so does that tell got, us it's... He, well, he's got renal tubular acidosis. I think that's it's usually typical of a distal renal tubular acidosis. Okay. Huh. All right. So are, are we pretty... Con- like, I, we can confidently move on saying like, okay, the urine pH is really high. That's a distal renal tubular acidosis or type 1. No, um, I don't. I don't know that we can say that for sure. I think we can say that it's RTA, but I would not at this point hang my hat on a on a distal RTA. But that that is that pattern. Hmm. You know, you okay? Yeah, I so can provide what, a little bit of interpretation and background too, if you want. Uh, yes, please. That would be great. So, with the urine anion gap being seven, it is positive, but it is sort of in the equivocal range. So. A definitely positive one is usually above 20 and definitely negative is usually less than minus 20. And in between that zone, sort of closer to zero is equivocal. And the urinary gap isn't always totally accurate in all contexts. And so sometimes you have to calculate a urine osmolar gap, which is more accurate and is less affected by other problems that may be going on. Did you do that? We did that. And? So his urine electrolytes... For the urine osmolar gap, his urine sodium is 91 and his potassium is 32. His urea is 73.6 and the glucose is negative. And his measured urine osmolality is 322. And I can probably spare you the calculation, but you get a urine osmolar gap of 2.1, which is very, very low. Usually less than 150 is indicative of impaired ammonia excretion, which is how the kidneys... excrete acid. Yeah, right. So, so and I think that John, I think you've actually, so one of the difficulties I have with all of these measurements is they are dynamic and, and it doesn't, it doesn't account sometimes for what's being added and, and what medications. And as I, so this is, I think about it the way I mentioned it at the outset, this man's acidemic and in general, for however part of the tubule that's dysfunctional, he's not able to excrete his acid. So on the basis of that, independent of what your numbers show, he's got renal tubular dysfunction leading to renal tubular acidosis. Yeah, definitely. Because if your numbers were different, it wouldn't it wouldn't matter to me. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. So are you saying that you're not investing a lot of time, Barry, into figuring out sort of proximal versus distal? 
No, I think that I would, but I'm just saying that let's say the numbers suggested, and you could potentially that there is no renal tubular acidosis. There is, you know, it's that the, you don't get the numbers to add up. I'm just saying that in many of these situations where the numbers don't add up, I disregard them anyway. Hmm. But then, how do you stratify your investigations? Because like RTAs have a, a bunch of different causes. How do you like? How do you narrow? Or are you just you're just investigating all those things at the same no, time? I, so I think the things that John mentions, I, all, all I was trying to say is maybe I should be clearer. But if we're using these to make the diagnosis of RTA, I think that there's a possibility that we could change the numbers and therefore not arrive at that diagnosis. All I'm suggesting is that I start with the premise that based on the things that I've said is that he does have an RTA. And then I try to account for what's going in and what's coming out and what balance he's at, because it's like GFR. I mean, we use the number, but but it's such a dynamic and, and it's an artificial formula anyway. So that's just, that's all I was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so can someone translate this for me? Like where, where are we at in terms of determining like what group are we even looking at now? Or have we narrowed it down? I'm, I'm a little RTA lost here. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Yeah. So the way Maybe this is this is wrong, and maybe this has to do more with with where I'm at in terms of my like having given up some of this sort of first principles understanding of RTAs. But I I have now switched over to sort of a more pattern recognition mode, and so I'm seeing an, an older person come in with presumably at this point an RTA, and I and I'm not recognizing one of the causes of distal like type one RTA. And so, so I have a kind of a list in my mind, you know, and, and I'm not seeing that. And so that's why I'm flipping over to, I'm wondering if this is a a proximal RTA. He's an 81 year old man and we don't know anything about his, his other blood work. He's not had a recent like protein electrophoresis. And so that's, that's what the first place I would go look, but I'm just using pattern recognition there. I'm not using first principles or, or that more sort of effortful organized approach. But but I think you are, and I, I would argue that you're you're actually using first principles. And the first principles is you've recognized an RTA, and secondly, he's eighty one. I mean, so he has presumably at his stage he has an acquired RTA. And yeah. the definition between the accuracy and sensitivity and specificity of making a diagnosis of the part of the nephron that's actually impaired, part of the tubule that's impaired, I, I think is less there's probably crossover anyway. So I think what I would do is say, just as we've said, he's got an RTA, it's acquired, and I would consider those diseases that lead to an acquired RTA in this age group. All right. So John, what did the team do? So we did a little bit more in terms of urinary studies as well. We did some 24-hour urine studies. We did a 24-hour collection for calcium, which was normal. We did a 24-hour collection for oxalate, which was also in the normal range. And we did a 24-hour calculation for citrate, which was undetectable. Why did you do the oxalate? I think just to look for excess oxalate secretion. And we were being comprehensive in the 24-hour urine studies. We were much more interested in the calcium and the citrate. And he'd have and the so history of renal it, stones as well. And, and so you, I think what you can say from that and this is facetially saying, is that he's adhered to his oxalate-free diet. Mm-hmm. So he, more than me, would know what to avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. That's great. So the team from this point felt pretty confident in making the type of RTA diagnosis based on all the labs that we have. And I'm happy to go through that reasoning. 
was it did yeah. they say it was proximal no it's a distal rta yeah that's what the lab yeah that's again yeah so that's what the lab work suggests but but i okay well this is this, i'm about to learn something here because I, I i i cannot as yet identify something in this man that would that i associate with a distal rta john the only thing i would ask is is that, i mean we had the the laboratory studies from a few months ago which we don't know his chloride and and bicarb but and, and his uh, his coronary artery uh, stenting was when so how did that fit into all of this that was back in 2011 did... that was 10 years ago 2011 sorry okay so i thought it was more recent okay sorry the old studies that you had asked for so if you look back through his labs like way way back so back in the fall this would have been five or six months prior, he did have the chloride that was 116 and a bicarb of 17. And if you look back a year before is the first time that he also has a chloride of 115 and a bicarb of 16 when you graph his labs. So dating back about a year and a half, he's had a non-NN gap or hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then just going through the characteristics of the RTA. So his bicarb's reasonably low, but that doesn't help you distinguish between type 1 and type 2. And we're into type 1 and type 2 based on what Barry said there, because he would be hyperchloremic uh, if he had a type 4. The urine pH is high. Hyperkalemic, sorry. Yeah. The urine pH is high, and he's always had a high urine pH if you look back the last couple of years as well. So the urine pH of being higher than 5.5 and above 6 is much more characteristic of a type 1. In type 2, it can be variable, but usually it's low unless they're getting bicarbonate therapy. The urine anion gap and then definitely the urine osmolar gap is indicative of a type 1 RTA and less so a type 2 RTA. And then he also has a history of renal stones, which is much more in keeping with a type 1 RTA. And then the last thing is that his urinary citrate is extremely low or undetectable in the urine studies. And hypocitrate urea is a hallmark of uh, type 1 or distal RTA as well. So that, that's when, that one's new to me, the, the citrate. I've sort of vaguely heard of that test. I don't think I've ever ordered that. And I, I don't have that. I did not have that content knowledge. So, so low citrate in the urine when in a workup for RTA is suggestive of a distal RTA. That's that's new to me. And John, was the phosphate measured in the urine? We didn't measure the phosphate in the urine. I know he had that one phosphate value that was a little bit low, but he, for the rest of the hospital stay, didn't have problems with his phosphate and he had no glucosuria. So we weren't thinking he had those other features of like a complete proximal RTA, as you mentioned, with like hypophosphatemia, hypouricemia, and amino acid loss, as well as sometimes glucosuria. Right. So, so he's not an acquired Fanconi's. He's, he's an RTA that's acquired recent in the last year or so, two years, I guess. Yeah. Within the last two years, which also incidentally corresponds somewhat with his history of stone formation. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do we so... know what the stones are? Did we ever, did we ever hear anything or had he ever had a stone analyzed? He actually did have a stone analyzed uh, more than once and most recently a few months prior and they were predominantly calcium phosphate stones with a little bit of calcium oxalate. Interesting. And the calcium phosphate stones are sort of classic in a distal RTA. 
because the urine pH is always elevated and the elevated urine pH creates an environment where the calcium phosphate can precipitate, whereas calcium oxalate doesn't necessarily need the high urine pH. Well, okay. So you've, you figured out that you figured out the type of RTA. And then I suppose that the next step is now that you have that figuring out the specific cause variant steps you have, do you have a cause that struck you already as have you solved it in your head yet? Well, I think Steph is what I, is. I mean, I I think Danny. I think you also. You know, I mean, Sjogren's could cause this. I mean, there's so many inter, the inter, any interstitial disease could cause any interstitial kidney disease. And I think the idea of having a dysproteinemia of some sort. And I wonder about the possibility. I mean, I'm sure that in association, if you looked at if you looked at Waldenstrom's. I mean, I'm just thinking about his age, and you know, I mean, what are those types of uh, malignancies that would be associated? You know, so myeloma deposition. You know, deposition in the kidney from uh, macroglobulins or uh, IgM. I think that's the sort of thing I would be thinking about. I maybe I'll learn. Not maybe I will learn other etiologies, but without looking it up. Those would be the things that would jump to mind, right, at the outset. If it turns out to be Sjogren's, then I think you guys have to admit that I win the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, you, Danny, you always win. You're the you're, you're winning. The, you're uh, winning. Yeah, you're, yeah. There's no. Uh, we're not keeping score. That's why I yell out random things at the beginning, just in case they come back later. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think. In terms of other inflammatory things, I think sarcoidosis is also on this list. But I, again. Like yeah. he's got no other no other symptoms of that, so maybe just all extrapulmonary sarcoid. You know, this is like this is <laughs> this is like distant echoes of old knowledge, but I think all kinds of hyperparathyroidism can be associated with with RTA. I think distal RTA, and so you know, if he has if he's had sort of brewing secondary hyperparathyroidism in relation to his uh, chronic kidney disease, I I think that's possibility but I, <laughs> don't quote me on that 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 might be old and and not not real knowledge so john do you have I'm, any uh, urine analysis for him sure. uh, for us uh, uh, i mean is his urine bland or is there anything to it yeah his urinalysis is bland i think a little bit of blood in his urine because of the history of stones like trace hemoglobin which is not new but the rest of the urinalysis was bland as was microscopy. Um, does it, so you had said actually, I believe that his urine, his twenty-four hour urine calcium was was low. I think you said that. So Steph, like, it was, does that it was normal? Out? Sorry, normal, normal. Okay, what does that mean for the the theory that this could be like hyperparathyroid or sarcoid? Wh- shouldn't which be. Then, that's, I, then that shouldn't be. If if if, okay. if it was either of those, he should be. He should maybe be hypercalcemic, at least if it's primary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And if this is all from sarcoid, I think the mechanism is probably the the urine, calcium in the urine. So I don't know. So probably not then. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at his but, diseases that he had and his medications that he has, and I really can't identify the diseases that we were told about or the medications that he has, at least I suppose I'd look all of them up, but I, I can't identify anything... Is there anything been added in the last uh, two years, John? No, or these are all. No, those are all long-standing yeah. medications. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, li- I don't like what, me. I don't like what's going on here. I'm not happy. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I'm just We're generally, I'm just generally speaking, unhappy. I, I don't, you know, if this guy doesn't have an abnormal SPEP, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to leave this thing unsatisfied, John. I'm not, you know, no pressure, but this has got. I want to get. I want you to give me a proximal RTA. I want you to tell me that all these urine studies were just incorrectly interpreted and that this is a myeloma. That's 
Anything short of that, I'm going to leave this thing upset. All right, John. Disappoint Steph for me. Get him. All right. Do you want to know what the team did next? I do. Okay. Okay. So maybe I should begin by apologizing then to Steph, and maybe I'll apologize to Dr. Kassin as well. We had sent off serology, and so he has a positive ANA at greater than 32.0, so it's it's off the charts. And his ENA is likewise positive at greater than 32.0, and his SSA and SSB antibodies are also beyond the upper limit of the lab's detection at greater than 240 and greater than 320, respectively. Oh, man. Oh, stop it. Did, does, he have, does he have any Sjogren's syndrome? Is it like, sorry, symptoms? So, like when you go back and you're like, okay, like you, we're we're pretty sure that these things tie together, but like, how about the things that are present in like most Sjogren's patients? Um, did he have any like or, ocular, oral, sicca, glandular symptoms? So, when you go back and ask him and probe him a bit more, he does have some sicca symptoms. Symptoms, sorry. So he has some dry eyes that have been bothering him for probably. A, a little while. He's tried eye drops, but he didn't like the brand that he tried and he just sort of lives with them. The dry mouth is moderate as well. It's probably not quite as bad. He's been drinking lots of water, so it's probably been masking it a bit. But he, if you ask him, he will volunteer that he thinks that his mouth is probably more dry than normal, but the eyes definitely. There's no other glandular symptoms and his review of rheumatological symptoms is unremarkable. So you're suggesting he has primary Sjogren's, and now we're going to start to do that dance? Oh, God. <laughs> um, does he, did, did he have any imaging of his chest to look for, like, any ILD or, like, anything else? Because I got to say, like, having somewhat dry eyes, like, not dry enough for you to bother finding eye drops that work, and having a titch of dry mouth, that is pretty close to just the human condition, right? Like... And, and so I are those real symptoms or or not, I, I wonder. And uh, I would love some other corroborating item for like the clinical picture of Sjogren's, if there is any. Put it this way, if those were the criteria for to get into the Sjogren's club, we'd have 10 people out and a million people in. <laughs> That's right. So I think that his dry eyes and dry mouth are worse than what a normal person would probably endorse. I, I agree that they're not the worst pathology of dry eyes and dry mouth that you might see in Sjogren's, but I think that they're definitely mentionable when you ask him, more so than someone who just gets seasonal dry eyes or something like that. He's had well, chest x-ray ask, before and it's Sorry, let me ask Danny. Danny, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, John, but Danny, you're the you're the expert in, in rheumatology and the expert in throwing out terms that may land, given his presentation and his findings, would you corroborate this by any tissue biopsy? And which tissue would you biopsy if you were to biopsy a tissue? That's such a good question. And the reason it's such a good question is that Sjogren's, when someone comes to you for a consult, like I'm sure you've you've all seen consults for people with dry mouth or dry eyes. And if you have nothing other than the dry mouth and dry eyes, and let's say you have an ANA, like you have an ANA and ENA that is exactly this pattern, you have possible Sjogren's. Like, I mean, that's a pretty big coincidence if, it, if you don't have Sjogren's to have that crazy high antibodies and a manifestation of the disease. However, it sincerely does not make a difference in terms of treatment. So none of the medications that have been tried for ocular and oral sicca work if you have autoimmune ocular and oral sicca from, from Sjogren's. So 
you, you treat exactly the same way as if someone has idiopathic ocular and oral sicca. And so in that setting, knowing that they have Sjogren's by doing a lip biopsy makes no functional difference compared to assuming or saying possible or keeping it in that like gray, gray area where they both do and don't have Sjogren's, right? Like Schrodinger's diagnosis. The only thing that would change is that if you have certain markers, so if you have Sjogren's at all, or if you have um, certain other risk factors within Sjogren's like cryoglobulinemia, not necessarily clinically active, um, hypergammaglobulinemia, those things increase your risk for lymphoma. So knowing is important only insofar as it, it slightly adjusts your risks for future lymphoma. In this case, I think, I think it does matter because it ties up the whole case. I think you could make a pretty reasonable clinical diagnosis on the basis of the really strong positive serology and the dry eyes, dry mouth. But I think in this person to clinch the diagnosis, I th- I, I, I'm not sure that a biopsy of the kidney makes, and I, I, I'm not aware of that as a useful test here. I would do a um, minor salivary gland biopsy, which is a, a li- an inner lip biopsy, um, which is a relatively low risk procedure that would totally wrap up this case. So to me, if this were the case, uh, he'd fall into the category of primary Sjogren's, which would put him into the target organ lymphomatous category. Would you agree with that? Uh, I'd say he is higher risk for a lymphoma, yes. Mm. Sorry, John, for interrupting. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I think I was done after the serology. I, I can tell you what we did and what the team thought. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you guys just booted him out of hospital. You're like, ah, oh, you got Sjogren's, bye, bud. Uh, yeah, what did you guys do? So I think the team felt that he checked off pretty much every box in terms of investigations uh, for classic distal RTA in terms of, you know, his urine pH, his urine studies, the low citrate, his history of forming stones that were calcium phosphate in nature as well. And so we were thinking what causes a distal RTA or a type 1 RTA. And there isn't a crazy long list in kids it tends to be familial stuff, but in adults, it's mostly autoimmune causes with Sjogren's and then sometimes lupus and RA, as well as the uh, hypercalcemia causes that Steph mentioned. And given his serology and then the sicka symptoms, especially with his serology being just so definite, we felt quite strongly that this was Sjogren's causing a distal RTA. And you can have a distal RTA caused by Sjogren's in the absence of any other Sjogren's symptoms which I found in my reading and I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. This whole discussion has made me sicker. <laughs> oh, Barry, Barry really liked that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I know I think this is, a, I mean, the, it really, so is this a diagnosis? And secondly, uh, what are we going to do about it? You know, and so are we just going to treat him symptomatically? Are we going to try to uncover uh, an association with his Sjogren's or are we going to say too bad? We're sad. Yeah. I routinely say too bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, you know, this is, and so why is he weak? So I think that he was, he was weak from his hyperkalemia and working up the underlying cause of the dyslexia RTA doesn't entirely change uh, what we did, especially once we found out that it was Sjogren's. So we started him on sodium bicarb therapy and we mm-hmm. discharged him. And then as an outpatient, he was actually switched to potassium citrate, which is probably in some cases the, the better therapy um, because uh, citrate helps chelate uh, calcium 
in the urine and reduces the risk of forming stones. And then citrate itself is a precursor to bicarb. So it helps act as a buffer and does the same thing that you might get with sodium bicarb. And the added potassium is just sort of a bonus because sometimes these people become hypokalemic. So once his potassium was replaced and he was started on sodium bicarb, uh, he felt much better. He had his energy back uh, once his electrolytes okay. normalized and he felt great and was quite thankful. Wow. That's a really, uh, that's a very satisfying case. Whew. I'm all sweaty. <laughs> Danny, you RTAs knew that make me you, sweat. You knew that just lobbing out those few words had to land someplace. Yeah, that's right. Uh, listeners don't know this, but we usually cut out me saying like 50 random things every episode. We just keep in the one that makes me look like I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, I think it's, that's that's really good. I'm I'm very uncomfortable with being schooled by Danny so badly. I just, I, I don't, oh, this is not good for me. I'm going to live I'm with gonna it. Have to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lick my wounds here and uh, and live hopefully to fight another day in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, no, no, I live with it. I think that that's great. It, it's, it's. I'm just going to share with you. I just saw an RTA the other day in clinic where the where just the opposite happened. Rather than hypokalemia, he was. Uh, there's a person sent a young guy, 28 years old, sent with hyperkalemia, potassiums that were going from 5.2 to 6.8, asymptomatic, and with with a sister and a and a mother who would had similar uh, issues. And so we worked worked him up. But it's just interesting. And with those numbers, he had no symptoms whatsoever, but he had ECG changes where he developed bundle branch blocks and things. So so given the fact he had no visible symptoms, no, no outward symptoms, but he had multiple biochemical and, and electrophysiologic symptoms. That, so maybe this guy with his, I guess just referring to thinking about this, maybe if we were able to look at his ECG and other things that uh, potassium actually was a more significant factor from, I'm just saying from my point of view, because I, I was using gross clinical tests that, that actually did the correction actually changed his electrophysiology or, uh, or his physiology. Wow. Well, yeah. thanks, John. John. Thank Jeez. you so much. John, that was a thank great you very case. much. That was great. Yeah. And uh, now I, I haunt Barry and Steph's dreams. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> Danny, you flatter yourself. You, this is, you, you don't haunt my dreams. John, thank you so much. That was, that was such a fantastic case. Yeah, that was great. I think that Steph and Barry did a lot of the grunt work there with the electrolyte stuff. And uh, Danny yeah, threw out children's it. and sat back until it became the diagnosis. <laughs> That's right. I, I just show up for the, uh, just to tip in that, uh, that rebound. <laughs> I think this is I think Danny's fishing in waters that have that are calmed by Steph and I who are building dams and holding back <laughs> fish <laughs> and then throwing the trout into them. Nicely well, done, Danny. <laughs> yeah. I, I obviously didn't know the answer to the, the case, but uh Nikki will cut all this out so that no one ever knows <laughs> I admitted it. <laughs> yeah. And it'll appear right on, man. All right, yeah, everyone, thank you, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks um, with a, a new case for you. Thanks, John. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me.